Elvis. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Johnny Depp are insane. So insane that his arrests are the least interesting thing about him. He built a bomb with gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson. His former co-owner of the Viper Room has been missing since 2001. He numbed himself with his mother's nerve pills when he was just 11 years old. Then he stayed numb as an adult by gulping down everything from acid to bootleg quaaludes laced with arsenic. But despite all that, Johnny Depp made great films. Unlike that clip I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great film. That was a fair use sample from the Library of Congress of Hulda Lashanska performing Pirate Dreams in 1920. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights to Peter Jackson's The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. And why would I play you that specific slice of Middle Earth cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was the number one movie in America on December 21st, 2001. And that was the day Johnny Depp's Viper Room co-owner went missing, right before he was scheduled to testify against Johnny. On this episode, Homemade bombs, worldwide arrests, bootleg quaaludes laced with arsenic, unsolved mysteries at the Viper Room, and Johnny Depp. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands, Season 8, Hollywoodland. It was minutes before Halloween and Johnny Depp didn't have a costume. The man of a thousand faces caught without a getup on the weirdest night of the year. No greaser hair gel and bad boy leather a la John Waters' crybaby. No fake scars on his cheeks or hands made of scissors. The truth was, Johnny Depp didn't need a costume. Tonight he was wearing his own kind of disguise. He was a musician. It wasn't even a front. Few people in 1993 knew that Johnny started playing guitar long before he ever started acting. He could play so well that he could hold his own on stage at the Viper Room with a who's who of the 1990s in attendance or on stage. Big dogs like Al Jorgensen of Ministry, Gibby Haynes of the Butthole Surfers, Ben Montench, one of Tom Petty's Heartbreakers, and bassist Flea, who needed little introduction in 1993 just as he doesn't need one now either. Together, the five men formed a supergroup called P, as in the letter. Each member had megawatt music credibility that preceded them. Everyone except Johnny Depp, of course. He was the least notable musician on stage at the dimly lit West Hollywood Club. 
It was a nice break from being the most famous person in the room. Here, Johnny blended into the scenery, just one detail of the Viper Room's claustrophobic atmosphere. Air thick with perspiration and smoke, stage lights boring into your retinas, and the sour odor of puke hanging in the air. Fucking John Fushante, the Chili Peppers guitarist, couldn't hold his liquor, or whatever he took that night. He ralphed right on the stage during his opening set. If he could call one song and a couple of heaves an actual set. And there was something else, a sixth sense, a creeping feeling in Johnny's spine. Somewhere, the club's clock brushed past midnight and it was officially Halloween, the witching hour, October 31st, 1993. Johnny sensed the air shift as he scanned the room from the stage. His gaze landed on another actor mingling in the crowd, River Phoenix. Light from the Art Deco wall sconces reflected in his youthful eyes. A guitar case rested by his side. River was just like Johnny, actor to the world, musician to his inner circle. His own band, Alaka's Attic, was a footnote to his work in movies like Stand By Me and My Own Private Idaho. River wasn't scheduled to perform tonight, but Johnny would see if he could squeeze him in. Because at the Viper Room, Johnny Depp called the shots. Johnny acquired co-ownership of the Sunset Boulevard Club just a few months prior. Running the Viper Room wasn't some lucrative business venture to him. It was a passion project. He craved a place where celebrities didn't have to be an object of fascination, where they could be shielded from the burdens of fame. And no meddling reporters, and no paparazzi, and no shrieking fans. The Viper Room was Johnny's selective, but not so secret, hiding spot. It was just a coincidence that shady shit would go down there. Like illegal high-stakes poker games among stars like Tobey Maguire and Leonardo DiCaprio. In excess frontman Michael Hutchins' final curtain call just days before his suicide. And the overdoses. The overdoses. Jason Donovan barely clinging to life at Kate Moss's 21st birthday bash. And Courtney Love nearly joining Kurt on the other side in 1995. She claimed Johnny was the one who gave her CPR that night. But the Viper Room's biggest tragedy was sitting in the crowd, and he stared Johnny right in the eyes, until he wasn't there anymore. Now, you know the story. River pocketing an eight ball of coke and heroin, and River disappearing, and River seizing on the sidewalk outside the club, people stepping around him, over him, and his brother Leaf, now known as Joaquin, holding him on the concrete to stop the thrashing, and River's heart giving out. River's death, the Viper Room's first scandal. Johnny Depp's supposed safe haven had claimed a life, and he hadn't even owned the place for a year yet. The papers pounced, blamed the Viper Room for River Phoenix's death, and labeled the club a lowbrow drug den. And they didn't know the truth, that Johnny didn't even like to indulge for shits and giggles the way that other celebrities did. They didn't know that he often observed the Viper Room from his own VIP area a private booth behind a two-way mirror that cut through the chaos and left Johnny secluded in his own world. Johnny just didn't party like everyone else. Truth be told, he didn't party much at all. He just got numb. Numb, like the way he felt when he drank. Numb, like the way his mother's nerve pills droned out the whole world when he was just 11 years old. 
Even back then, Johnny needed a sense of calm to ground him because there was nothing grounded about the Depp family. Growing up, home wasn't a place for Johnny. It was more of a flimsy concept. Home was ever-changing, with no guarantees of safety or stability. Home was wherever Johnny's mother, Betty Sue, said they were going. A house one month, and maybe a farm the next. And then a stint in a motel, only to haul all their belongings over to a different house. Often, there was no rhyme or reason behind the moves. And that was the thing about Betty Sue. She didn't always have a reason for what she did. Not when she forced her family into a nomadic lifestyle, moving between 30 and 40 times during Johnny's childhood. 30 and 40 times. And not when she hurled household objects at Johnny's face. Ashtrays, phones, you name it. Johnny and his siblings were afraid to speak. He called their various abodes ghost houses. Johnny dealt with his mother's haunting presence the only way he could, with compassion and chemicals. When Betty Sue returned from her double shifts as a waitress, Johnny would emerge from his room long enough to rub her feet and help counter tips. While he was at it, maybe he would slip a few of her nerve pills. The fact that Johnny was only 11 years old didn't faze him. The Depp family started everything early. Johnny shot his first gun at five or six years old, started smoking at age 12, lost his virginity at 13, picked up drinking somewhere in between. Even Betty Sue was on drugs by age 12, and this was all par for the course. Johnny's upbringing wasn't all doom and gloom, though. He carried certain fond memories with him into adulthood. The Kentucky afternoons picking tobacco with his pawpaw, nights trapping lightning bugs under the glow of the moon, his simple dreams of being the first white Harlem Globetrotter, and the goofy nicknames from the kids at school, Johnny Dip, Deputy Dog, Dippity Doo. They were all fragments of the average American childhood in the 1960s and 70s. But the beatings, the constant moving, and the adolescent drug use, and that wasn't so normal. In fact, what was normal to Johnny was alarmingly abnormal to everyone else. His childhood skewed his perspective towards the unusual, the oddities of the world, the others. And those years molded him as the ideal actor for unusual roles and adventurous art flicks that would astound the average American. It was something Johnny would never outgrow. His will to be weird clung to him, just like his need to get numb. The sky over Sunset Boulevard looked ready for its close-up. Neat lines of palm trees reaching towards a blanket of dark blue. Strips of orange on the horizon shrinking away. And replaced by the vibrant hues of neon signs awakening in the windows of clubs and cheap takeout joints. Tourists swarming to the light like moths under the last glimmers of daylight. As celebrities in convertibles snaked in the Beverly Hills undetected. They called it Sunset Boulevard for a reason. No sight in Hollywood was more glorious than the Strip at this hour. 
It was straight out of a movie set. It was even better if he drank it in from a decent vantage point, like the view from Atlantic Records headquarters. That's where Johnny was right now, but he wasn't admiring the view because he was sprinting around the building, eight stories in the air, on scaffolding. Johnny's footsteps hammered on the wooden boards around the exterior of Atlantic Records' headquarters. His buddy Evan stayed hot on his tail, and the glowing view of Sunset Boulevard flew by in the periphery as their clumsy elephant steps circled the building, over and over and over and over again. 100 feet separated them from the pavement below, and not super high, but high enough to make your skeleton go splat when it hit the strip. Johnny and Evan, though, they were super high. And their current acid trip literally sent them off to the races. A few minutes ago, they could barely move, let alone sprint. Johnny and Evan were immobile, mesmerized by the seductive French pop of stereo labs spilling from the stereo. They drooped in their chairs while taking pensive drags of cigarettes. They had two settings tonight, stone still or giggle fits. And they alternated between the two states rapidly. Smoke, giggle, smoke, giggle. Except nothing was funny about Atlantic Records at 7 p.m. on a weeknight. Especially not to the label employee babysitting them. He studied the friends from behind his desk as he sorted through old receipts. Evan here, the friend, wasn't an actor like Johnny. He was a musician, frontman of the 90s alternative band, The Lemonheads. The Lemonheads had a deal with Atlantic, which meant Evan had a place to pause for a smoke whenever he needed one. He found the lone employee on the eighth floor and asked to bum a few cigarettes one fateful night in 1993. And then a few smokes turned into a casual hang. Johnny and Evan were like two teenagers sprawled out in a bedroom, sneaking a joint and listening to a new record for the first time. And eventually, Evan had the courtesy to lean over and clue the employee in. He and Johnny were tripping their balls off. And the employee raised his eyebrows as if to say, well, that explains it. It also explained why the pair up and left just as suddenly as they entered. At least the employee thought they left. The scene outside his window told him otherwise. Johnny and Evan's silhouettes shot by the window like cannonballs. High people find the weirdest things, like an opening to exterior scaffolding. Apparently, either Johnny or Evan had the idea to weasel their way outside to get some laps in, and the employee could hear them winding around the building on the scaffolding like a roller coaster gaining momentum before its final drop. And that was something that the employee didn't want to stick around for. Johnny and Evan were outside his office now, and therefore outside his jurisdiction. He packed up his paperwork and braced himself for two Gone Too Soon articles in the paper the next day. But the tragic news never came. It's easy to miss something weird going on in Hollywood. People didn't pay any mind to River Phoenix convulsing on the sidewalk, literally dying right in front of them. And Johnny Depp and Evan Dando running laps around scaffolding up high on a building was no different either. The buzzing neon nightlife diverted everyone's attention. Johnny didn't feel pressure to be a spectacle tonight, even though in that moment he most definitely was a spectacle. That was how he liked it, under the radar. Johnny didn't move to the West Coast to be preserved on a pedestal. He chased a different American dream, a life like the one Evan Dando was already living. Johnny Depp didn't come to California to act. Johnny Depp came to California 
to make rock and roll. In the 1980s, before Johnny Depp could even fathom being in a band like P, he performed in a different group. They called themselves The Kids. It was a simple, honest name. Johnny and his crew were actual kids, fresh high school dropouts who knew rock and roll fame awaited them on the Golden Coast. Grown-ups dug the kids' sound enough to put them on the same bills as actual rock stars. They opened for Talking Heads, the Ramones, the Pretenders, the B-52s, and they even opened for Iggy Pop, who Johnny called Iggy Poop to his face. Iggy fired back and called Johnny a little turd. An attitude like that could kill your chances in the entertainment business, but the reality was, it wasn't a bad gig that sunk the kids. They just couldn't keep up with the financial burdens of adulthood out west. When the band split up to pursue grown-up jobs, Johnny Depp turned to telemarketing, hawking pens. Telemarketers lie. A lot. Most salesmen do. Do you want to win a trip to the coast of Greece? A finely crafted grandfather clock? Step right up and sign along the dotted line with your brand new pen for a chance to win. Johnny got so good at lying that he called the job his first acting gig, and he meant it as a joke. But when the real acting gig started to come, no one was laughing, because no one sold a lie better than Johnny Depp. He sold a scene of a teenager being swallowed whole by a bed in a nightmare on Elm Street. He sold a glimpse of a doomed U.S. Army soldier's final moments in Platoon. And for four god-awful years, he sold the lie that he was an undercover cop in a Fox TV show called 21 Jump Street. And that was one lie that made Johnny Depp's stomach curdle. He didn't see any art in those scripts. He saw dollar signs, dollar signs for Fox. 21 Jump Street made Johnny famous, but it made him a commercial commodity too. So he turned down the lead in an interview with a vampire and let Tom Cruise step in instead. Brad Pitt got Johnny's rejected role as Tristan Ludlow in Legends of the Fall. And a little actor named Keanu Reeves accepted the main role in Speed, also first offered to Johnny, and rocketed to the top of Hollywood's A-list. Johnny had a name for actors like those, Blockbuster Boy. He wanted no part of that kind of trajectory. Making music didn't work out for Johnny, and that was fine, but he wouldn't let go of making art. He swore he wouldn't stoop as low as he did for 21 Jump Street ever again. You could take the music out of Johnny Depp's career, but you couldn't take out the creativity. Roger Daltrey stared at the wall of his hotel and tried to picture what the hell could be happening on the other side. The noises in the next room sounded like an elephant trampling a furniture store and either that or a rabid raccoon bouncing off the walls. And that was it. Roger didn't give a shit about the reason anymore. He could deal with noise, sure. He was the front man of the who. But he didn't pay $1,200 a night to listen to glass shattering at 5.30 in the morning. He dialed for security and let the guards discover what exactly was behind door number 1410 at Manhattan's Mark Hotel that morning. September 13th, 1994. Overturned furniture, a shattered glass coffee table, legs snapped off in frustration, smashed china and antique picture frames. And Johnny Depp sat in the middle of the heat, nursing a cigarette. His then girlfriend, British supermodel Kate Moss, lingered nearby, unharmed. 
Trashing hotel rooms is practically a celebrity's rite of passage. Joe Walsh from the Eagles took chainsaws to furniture and once racked up a $28,000 bill in damages alongside John Belushi and Glenn Fry. Aerosmith threw televisions into TV pools while they were still plugged in. But the debris surrounding Johnny Depp wasn't the result of him cutting loose after a few drinks. It was the aftermath of being the media's novelty boy, as Johnny called it. A potent mixture of rage, disgust, and frustration. He threw one swing at the sofa for every paparazzo who chased him earlier that day. A kick through the glass coffee table for each person who told him to take bigger roles. Boring, soulless, blockbuster roles that paid better in cash but felt artistically bankrupt. He heard the empty refrain all the time. Come on, do this movie. You can make tons of money. And as if it was about the paycheck. How many times had he heard that before? Johnny wasn't interested in any 21 Jump Street bullshit anymore. He liked his oddball roles. He liked playing a puppy dog-eyed freak in Edward Scissorhands. He liked becoming John Waters' vision of a bad boy in Crybaby. He liked breaking barriers by transforming into a delusional cross-dressing director for Ed Wood. And while taking the lead in What's Eating Gilbert Grape was a downer, but art was a downer sometimes. Better to be a downer with a message than a happy-go-lucky fuck with nothing to say. Now that was a letdown. All the pressure and aggravation had been snowballing inside Johnny, building and building since the day he left 21 Jump Street. Tonight's eruption was inevitable. Not that Johnny told security any of that. He placed the blame elsewhere, said a wild animal sprang out of the closet and made a multi-thousand dollar mess while he chased after it. And as they arrested him and slapped him with the balance of $9,700, Johnny Depp said, they were in armadillo country. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Johnny Depp squatted over the propane tank in the dark. He taped matchbox-sized squares to the sides one by one, just as he was told. The embers of the cigarette dangling from his lips lit the way in the murky Colorado night. Johnny didn't know he was building a powerful bomb, and with a relative stranger, no less. He turned to his new pal, Hunter S. Thompson. What are these things? Hunter fired back with nonchalance. Oh, that's nitroglycerin. The butt nearly fell out of Johnny's mouth. Of course, the infamous gonzo journalist kept explosives around just for kicks. This was Hunter S. Thompson, the godfather of modern journalism at the time. Veteran reporter with an encyclopedic knowledge of politics, drugs, and every form of danger known to the modern world. Johnny couldn't chicken out now. He taped the last squares of nitroglycerin to the tank and took the 12-gauge shotgun Hunter handed him without hesitation. The Kentucky boy inside Johnny took it from there. One shot was all he needed. The bomb rocketed 80 feet into the Colorado sky. There was no propane tank anymore. Only a homemade fireball propelled straight towards the moon. If this was a test, then Johnny passed muster with Hunter immediately. But this is no surprise. Johnny and Hunter were like two shells and a shotgun. Two Kentucky-born Southern gentlemen. Two kings of American counterculture with unorthodox definitions of fun. 
They bonded so quickly, you'd never guess they only met earlier that afternoon. Out of my way, you bastards! Hunter S. Thompson barged into the Woody Creek Tavern like he owned the damn place. A three-foot cattle prod in one hand, taser gun in the other. Hunter called them his just-in-case weapons. Bodies lurched away from Hunter's weapons as he approached Johnny's table. He introduced himself as Hunter. No last name needed. The simple hello led to an entire day and night drinking at the tavern. And that led to a personal invitation to Hunter's nearby ranch. Which, of course, ended in a lifelong friendship forged in flammables and explosives. When Universal needed a lead for a film rendition of Hunter's 1971 magnum opus, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, there was only one actor who could pull it off. Fear and Loathing revolves around a journalist named Raoul Duke, the book's main character. Well, really the main character is drugs. Every drug, all the drugs. Raoul is the manic narrator gobbling every drug in sight as he and his lawyer, Dr. Gonzo, hunt down the last pieces of the shattered American dream in a dismal post-Kennedy, post-Martin Luther King era. Raoul is a thinly veiled, if not hugely exaggerated, caricature of Hunter Thompson. Johnny once estimated that Raoul was 97% Hunter, and Johnny was pretty damn close to 100% Hunter himself, but he'd need serious training to close the gap. You have to remember, Hunter S. Thompson is the journalist who broke bread with the Hells Angels and documented their culture when most journalists were too chicken shit to do it. The same author who wrote his Raul character hit downtown Las Vegas with, and I quote, two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, five sheets of high-powered blotter acid, and a salt shaker half full of cocaine. And a whole galaxy of multicolored uppers, downers, screamers, and laughers, end quote. Oh, and a pint of raw ether and two dozen amyl nitrate for good measure. Hunter did more than put to paper what it was like to gobble through Sin City in the 1970s. He made a career out of sinning and breaking ground while he did it. Hunter S. Thompson was the ultimate novelty boy because no one did anything like him. No one took drugs like him. No one binged drugs like him. No one wrote, no one cussed like he did. And he invented an entire genre of writing that no one can successfully replicate to this day. Try to find a modern piece of journalism that calls itself gonzo that doesn't suck. I dare you. It's impossible to authentically replicate Hunter S. Thompson, and Johnny Depp knew it. So he did the next best thing. Johnny moved in with Hunter and started picking up his habits, mannerisms, ways of speaking. He kept spiders as roommates in Hunter's basement, where he slept on a sofa next to a keg of gunpowder. Johnny trained his body to be on Hunter's time. Breakfast began at seven at night followed by hours of ESPN and silence. And then Hunter transformed into a fountain of conversation, effervescing with thoughts and insight on every topic under the sun. Now he was wound up. Time to hit the bar, toss him back until the joint tossed you out for quitting time. And Johnny was back in bed by nine or 10 in the morning. The schedule really changed, but the drugs were always different. Johnny and Hunter liked to dabble in new chemicals together, test their limits, see what they could handle. They called it the too much fun club because getting numb was actually fun for once. They learned that smoking mystery resin made Hunter puke, but bootleg quaaludes containing arsenic made Johnny eager to fuck or fight. 
Sometimes Hunter drew the line for Johnny because the drugs were too intense. Stuff like lysergic acid, which Hunter claimed was a two-day commitment. When Hunter S. Thompson advised against the drug, that really said something. When it was time to begin work on Fear and Loathing in 1997, Johnny peeled away from Aspen and Hunter's red Chevy convertible in the piercing Colorado winter, winding through the Rockies with the top frozen open on his way to Los Angeles. And buy the ticket, take the ride. And don't forget what the King of Gonzo taught you. The first scene Universal wanted to shoot involved Raul, AKA Hunter, AKA Johnny, snorting ether in the gaudy bowels of downtown Las Vegas. Hunter once told Johnny huffing the drug was the equivalent of drinking 23 bottles of wine. Ether was off the table on set, of course, but the wine wasn't. Johnny knocked back an unknown amount of vino and prepared his farce. He took a fake, mighty whiff of his handkerchief, and then he let Hunter's training take over. A couple of sniffs, and suddenly you're leaving your body. The world sways around you, and in reality, you're the one swaying taking awkward steps like an alien in human form for the first time. Lights feel heavy, they barrel into you. You're thrust into a vortex of neon. You're the biggest clown in Sin City's carnival. You're the lion tamer and the lion. You're downright dangerous, but also in danger. Your steps grow sloppier and more disjointed. Hey, you're lucky if you're not drooling. Which part of your body would go next? Your vision, your speech, your basic motor skills, all of the above. Acting in fear and loathing meant that life looked like a dizzying, drugged-up circus. And that wasn't Johnny's problem. The problem was, the circus didn't stop when he stepped off set. A real circus followed Johnny Depp in lockstep. The fans, the blockbuster movie offers, the photographers. And that circus didn't stop. Even if Johnny was stone sober, even if he tried to stick to his metaphorical artistic guns, he was still stuck there, woozy under the big top. And the merry-go-round always spun faster and faster. Bejeweled horses galloping, bucking by his side. Tricked mirrors warping Johnny's funny faces into cackling demons. Greedy hands clutching dollar bills, reaching out and dropping the cash so they can grab him instead. The hands wanted more than Johnny's talent for lying, or I mean acting. They wanted his values, everything he stood for as an artist and they wanted his soul, and then they wanted his family. Johnny Depp gripped the wooden plank with fury. It wasn't a three-foot cattle prod, but it would do, all 17 inches of it. He found it outside on the streets of London that night, the same place where the paparazzi found him. Johnny swung the plank at one pap's hand. The first fucking guy who hits a flash, I'm gonna kick his skull in, he said, eyeing the photographers surrounding him. Johnny was fresh out of fucks. Let's go, he taunted. Take my picture. But it wasn't a picture of Johnny they were after. They needed a snap of his girlfriend, Vanessa, and her growing baby bump. She was carrying Johnny's first child, tabloid gold. The invasion of privacy made Johnny fume. It was one thing to be treated like a novelty, a pain in the ass, sure, but it was his problem and his alone. Johnny's family wouldn't be part of this freak show if he and his wooden plank had anything to say about it. 
The photographers backed away from him slowly, and Johnny nudged them down the street, away from Vanessa, until she could leave the restaurant in privacy. No snaps, no swings, all was well, until the paddy wagon lights came on. December 31st, 1999. The London police carted Johnny downtown for his so-called threatening behavior. It's bullshit. As if those paparazzi weren't threatening him first, preying on his pregnant girlfriend. Cowards didn't even have the balls to file charges against Johnny. That would have meant exposing their names to the public in legal paperwork. They preferred to remain anonymous. It must be nice. Johnny was out of jail within a few hours and with no further issues. But the circus still wasn't over. It was 2000 now, a new millennium, a new Johnny Depp, whether he liked it or not. His dreams of the 1990s were going belly up. The Viper Room was still a taboo topic. All those years after River's death, one of the club's co-owners, Anthony Fox, suddenly insisted that Johnny and some pals conspired to skim from the profits. And we're talking millions here. Anthony was so insistent that he filed a lawsuit against Johnny and four other Viper Room employees. But Anthony never ended up speaking a single bad word against Johnny Depp. He didn't even show up to his own case. Because Anthony Fox went missing on December 21st, 2001, immediately before he was scheduled to testify against Johnny. He was gone. So were his pickup truck and his 38 caliber revolver. The truck turned up in Santa Clara, California a few weeks later. But Anthony never turned up. And he's still missing as I record this now. First, River, and now another lost soul connected to the Viper Room. The fantasy of protection was over. A few years later, Johnny quietly passed his ownership of the club to Anthony's daughter. There was no use clinging to his vision any longer. He was 10 years older now, old enough to know privacy and celebrity could never coexist. Johnny even jumped ship on his old ideals and finally accepted a blockbuster role in the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. His charisma as the rum-swelling captain Jack Sparrow, a character he based on Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards, helped Disney rake in $4 billion worldwide. His face was everywhere. Posters, billboards, cereal boxes, action figures. Everything commercial that Johnny Depp loathed about 21 Jump Street over a decade ago was dumped back in his lap. Johnny's frequent collaborator, director Tim Burton, supersized his projects to match Johnny's advanced level of stardom. Johnny became the new face of iconic characters like Willy Wonka in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and the Mad Hatter in not one, but two live-action Alice in Wonderland movies. Johnny's knack for lying had never been more bankable. But maybe the biggest lie he ever told wasn't projected in front of an audience, dressed as a bumbling pirate or a deranged chocolatier. Maybe the biggest lie Johnny ever told was to himself. The lie that he could outrun the demands of fame that he could break artistic ground without being perceived as a novelty. And maybe that line between private and public, between art and avarice, can only exist in pictures. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. 
Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcasts because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. Double Elvis.